The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Stocks rallying today with the NASDAQ leading the way. Best day in almost a month for that average. That's the scorecard on Wall Street, but the action is just getting started. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan with John Fort. We are awaiting breaking news this hour. When we get the latest release of the Fed balance sheet, we are going to bring you that as soon as it's out. Plus, manufacturing in the cloud. We've got an exclusive interview with Snowflake CEO Frank Slootman on today's launch of a new cloud product for manufacturers. Let's get straight to the rally with our market panel. Joining us now are Amy, Ru- Amy Wu Silverman from RBC Capital Markets and Keith Lerner from Truist. Good afternoon to you both. Keith, I will start with you. Looking at the action in the markets today, is this the calm before the storm or is this a scene setter for more resilient earnings than are currently expected? Yeah, well, great to be with you. And, and like you said, the market has been pretty resilient here. But our overall view right now is that the market is starting to price in a lot of good news and there's little margin for error. We're around 4150. You know, if I stress test some of our assumptions and let's just say I give this this market overall the highest PE outside the pandemic of the last decade, that's about 18.5. And let's just say earnings um, for the for the next 12 months are where the consensus estimates are today are right, which we think they're too high. That brings you maybe slightly above 4200. So in our view, the upside is likely, um, you know, capped you know, somewhere from about, from about two or three percent. Of course, positioning can get you a little bit above that. But um, as we get into earnings, we think that uh, the market is going to start selling. And again, from our standpoint, folks that are overweight risk at this point, we would be pairing back into the earnings season. OK. And the S&P today finishing the day at 41.47, up about 1.4 percent. Amy, you're head of derivatives strategy. When it comes to options, the action we see in options can be very telling in the near term about market moves. What are you seeing where the banks and financials more broadly are concerned ahead of those earnings coming out tomorrow? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it feels a little calm before the storm because you have a VIX at a sub 20. But the reality is there's a lot of options activity right now playing out in financials. And you know what I think is interesting? It's all quite bullish. So you're seeing a lot of pre-positioning in KRE, the regional banks ETF, as well as XLF, the larger cap financials ETF. And all that positioning tends to be leaning more toward the call side right now. So, Keith, this is weird. Um, Just bottom line for me. What should investors at home do in this situation where, I mean, what the market is doing valuation-wise and even directionally today could seem a little bit out of sync with what the Fed economists were saying yesterday about a recession and all the uncertainty we have heading into earnings season? No, it's a, it's a good point. And, um, you know, I think if you think about the last month, and we, if we were on a month ago and we said there's going to be some bank stress in the system, 
you know, we probably would discuss it more, you know, we, how much is the market down, not if it's down or up. So instead, the market's been, you know, really resilient. But I think partly what's happened is the market is looking at what's happened over the last month as bringing the, the end of the Fed cycle closer. And around the Fed pause, you typically get some type of rally. But from our perspective, um, you know, we just think that the risk reward is not that great. So, again, everyone's different on an individual basis. But in our portfolios, uh, what we would be doing or what we are doing right now is we have an overweight to fixed income and cash. Uh, we still have equities, but we're below long term targets. And we would be patient to be, you know, one of our themes this year is to be tactical, to be defensive. At some point, we'd like to go on offense. But again, the, you know, if we had a more compelling opportunity or if this market instead just kind of chops along here hmm. and moves sideways, that's just unexciting in, in our view. So you're, you're getting ready to buy more later with the idea that things are likely to come down from here. Amy, um, similarly, are, are, are you thinking based on what you were saying that that would be a, a smart uh, move for investors to make? Just, you know, if you got dry powder, keep it dry and wait. You know, it's interesting because the one thing I like about focusing on the option side is there's this ability to be really tactical. So, I, you know, I, I think what's interesting is maybe we're kind of range bound on a longer duration sense. But short term, I do see these opportunities. For instance, let's say financials institutions come out and they say, look, you know, we're actually OK on the depositor side. Maybe long term, the balance sheet isn't strong, but that gives you some sort of short term rally. Right now, those option prices are relatively inexpensive for an earnings Season, especially one that's this critical. And so short term, you can still own some calls, a very low outlay and premium. But then obviously, you still keep some dry powder behind you. Okay. Keith, what would you be looking for in this market right now to start buying and where? So I mean, we're still in the market in general, again, just more of an underweight position. And uh, I mean, we think globally, and globally, we still like the US better than other markets. It's a big blue chip country. And within, um, you know, within the overall market, uh, even though we certainly acknowledge that it's expensive, we still think tech on a relative basis will be an outperformer because I think investors will continue to look for areas of safety. The dollar has been weakening. The um, interest rates have come down as well. So we would also uh, stick there. Listen, for longer-term investors who can stomach the volatility, I think longer-term, the valuations in small caps and mid caps are compelling. The business cycle is just working against them. But again, for folks that are thinking a little bit longer-term, I think you could use some of this choppiness I mean, small caps are still down about 10% off the uh, the recent highs from a few months ago. So those are areas, but I think I think time frame really matters today. Okay, um, I, I like that that balance that you guys gave there, Keith, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. Let's focus in on the numbers for the economy as another cooler than expected inflation print helped boost sentiment on Wall Street quite a bit today. Steve Leisman got more on today's producer price index. Steve. Yeah, uh, John, a, a big beat on wholesale prices, raising optimism about the outlook for inflation and lowering the outlook for Fed rates. And I'll show you that in a second. But first, here were the numbers down half a point on the headline versus uh, zero expected. Now, the uh, core X food and energy was up a tenth more than expected. But look at that X food energy and trade that trade portion. We'll see that in a second. That's a proxy for margins, which have helped push up inflation and now on the way down with the clearing of some of the supply chain issues is helping push it down. So take a look, food up 0.6%, but trade services, that's that margin proxy right there, down by almost a full percentage point, transportation and warehousing down by 1.3, and there's the big uh, reason for the decline, energy down 6.4%. Now remember, PPI led the way up in the inflation surge, 
it rose ahead of consumer inflation. You can see that in this chart. And it began falling before consumer prices did. So it suggests price pressure is easing up the supply chain and importantly could have a positive impact on services inflation. That's the thing the Fed is watching most carefully here. So what did it all mean for the Fed? We've had two inflation reports this week. The outlook for the Fed, for, we look at the January 24 contract to see the outlook for the full year. It's eased about 10 base points. Not a whole lot, but remember, it was already 70 basis points lighter than where the Fed thinks it will be at year end. So a pretty big disagreement between the market and the Fed. Keep going tomorrow, we get retail sales that Wall Street expects to show a decline. So here we go. Question is whether we have a weakening consumer with improving inflation numbers, some new softness in the job market, and concerns over credit tightening, whether that could move the Fed finally into the pause column for May. Folks? Steve, uh, tell me more about this trade services proxy for margins thing. I don't understand that. It's a complicated thing, but basically if um, it's the profits received by the differential between the wholesale price and the consumer price ends up being a tack on or an add-on ends up being part of the wholesale prices. So that was something that was really strong on the way up, and now it's coming down. So it's an issue we've talked about, John, which is um, retailers and wholesalers have done very well as prices rose. In most cases, it appears they raised prices more than their input prices, for whatever reason, we can argue about that. And now they're on the way down, and so some of those profit margins or extra profits from raising profits are going away. Mm. That's going to be the key thing to watch in this earnings season, and whether there's companies that can navigate that sweet spot of falling costs with those prices remaining high. I know you're going to be on the lookout for all of that. And Steve, you're going to be joining us a little bit later this hour for the H41 balance sheet data from the Fed, a.k.a the salad buffet, as you named it last week. The Fed salad buffet, a place you can go and get tomatoes or money from this different thing. And we'll see how much continued stress there is in the banking system, which is key to the outlook. Remember, yesterday we learned that the Fed staff has now made a recession, their baseline uh, forecast, Morgan. And the, one of the reasons is because of their concern about credit tightening in the economy. Yeah. And this is one weekly measure we get. Yeah. And of course, they hiked anyway. Steve Leisman, thank you. No, I get it. There's money in this buffet. I like this buffet. All right, coming up next, our exclusive interview <laughs> with Snowflake CEO Frank Slootman as his company announces a new cloud service to help companies manage supply chains and manufacturing. We're going to hear more about that news and his forecast for enterprise spending when overtime comes right back. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. Saving, researching, investing. Now you can take those investments to the next level with Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. I have an investment account with Schwab and a 401k with Fidelity, and I use Yahoo Finance to consolidate them so it's incredibly easy to manage. They've been helping great investors like you for over 25 years. So whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking to level up, 
Yahoo Finance can simplify things, putting all your tools and data in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a 360-degree look at the financial news cycle, from breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, and customizable charts. They've got you covered. You can see all of your 401k and other investments by securely linking your brokerage accounts. Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you see your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective helps smart investors become even better. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back. Tech seeing strong gains today, but Emphasis just posted its worst session in three years. The Indian IT company said its revenue growth would hit a six-year low as clients clamp down and defer spending because of growing recession fears. The CEO said unplanned ramp-downs in client projects across a number of sectors, including financial services, were part of that slowdown. Emphasis is the second-largest IT exporter in India. The largest Tata consultancy reported similarly disappointing numbers earlier this week. Now, cloud computing firm Snowflake flagged a similar concern just about slowing consumption earlier this year, saying customers were purchasing smaller uh, bits, but it expected them to consume the same amount just in smaller chunks. Meantime, Snowflake today announcing a new manufacturing data cloud aimed at improving supply chain performance for auto tech, energy and industrial companies. Joining us now, Snowflake CEO Frank Slootman. Frank, great to have you back. Uh, let's talk about manufacturing here. There's still a lot of economic activity happening, but there's a need for efficiency. How is this offering going to drive that? Yeah, there's, there's really two major domains, if you will, that are the focus of the manufacturing cloud. You know, one is supply chain management. Uh, I, I personally have a passion, you know, around it, and th the reason is supply chain management is sort of the only major uh, realm in the enterprise that has never been platformed. It's, it's still spreadsheets and email, uh, how people run uh, run supply chains, and it is essentially a data problem. So we're incredibly well suited to uh, to make enormous uh, headway there. The other domain uh, is really what we refer to as as IoT, which stands for Internet of Things, but it's really acquiring data from machines and uh, that that data is then processed and used for predictive maintenance and service experience management um, all kinds of optimizations are being used and uh, we've been on, on the factory floor this is already quite common hmm. this is a sort of a use case that's in in, in wide use well uh, communication between different pieces of the supply chain, also in a, an important piece here. At least that's what I was hearing earlier today from uh, the CEO of Autodesk, uh, Andrew Anagnost. Here's what he had to say about what manufacturers need from the cloud right now. Take a listen. It can't just be China. They, they have to think about nearshoring. They have to think about distributed supply chains, supply chains that come from the east, the west, from the south, potentially from the north. And they have to be able to dynamically shift between those as time goes on based on their demand and based on the capacity of their supply chain partners. The number one thing that gets in the way of people successfully managing multiple supply chains is the ability to communicate what you want from that supplier, what you want them to build, how you want them to build it, how it integrates with, 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 with what you're trying to build as a system. Frank, is this gonna help with that communication? 
Well, it's fundamentally a data problem. And in, in a supply chain, you have multiple partners and, you know, the data is siloed. So people have real trouble, uh, you know, getting the, the oversight of, uh, of what's going on. I mean, signals get, get generated, but they're not in your world. They're in somebody else's world. I mean, if you're making ice cream, I mean, there's four, four ingredients that make up vanilla ice cream. Uh, but they come from different places and, and, and different people. And that, that is the simplest uh, example I can come up with. You can go over to a, somebody like Honeywell, who has like 4 million SKUs. I mean, the, the equation obviously changes just dramatically in terms of the complexity of the, uh, of the problem and the challenges. So, uh, Frank, it's Morgan. At a time where you do have companies beginning to tighten their belts, uh, given all the economic uncertainty, what is the pitch around this manufacturing data cloud? What does it do in terms of increasing productivity and lowering costs and uh, making the process of actually producing a good faster? Yeah, well, you no know, supply chain management uh, it became inc incredibly pronounced uh, during the pandemic. We, we were sending the, the, the wrong product to the wrong places every day, and we were upside down on everything. And you saw this from the large retailers and the large manufacturers. That's because we, we, we can no longer uh, drive our operations through anecdotal observation. We, we really need to be predictive, we need to be data-driven, all these kinds of things. So, yes, you're going to become efficient. Uh, you know, this is, this is a, a, a very opportunity-rich environment to make improvement because the technology really exists now to, to get the overview, to be predictive, and to really manage operations with a high level uh, of efficiency. That, th this has been a problem people have been trying to solve for the last 30 years and made very, very little headway on. Um, from the factory floor, I mean, we work with semiconductor companies uh, for years that have very, very deep instrumentation on the, on, on the equipment that they use for, uh, for manufacturing, and they're very sophisticated. But you now see that everywhere. When you see people like Scania, which is the, the truck division of Volkswagen, I mean, the, the amount of data that they're acquiring in real time from the vehicles on the, on the road, and they use that for, uh, for predictive maintenance and, mm. and Kind of service experience issues. This is where there's a, there's a huge pickup on, uh, on 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 efficiency. So Frank, let me try to connect this to what you were telling us right after you reported earnings, which was that some of the newer customers in this environment are taking longer to ramp up their spend and consumption because they they want to see the the return on that technology investment. For this manufacturing data cloud, is there a quicker or more clear return on that investment because of the immediacy of supply chain? You know, I think that uh, the, the, the slower uh, ramp really has to do that we're dealing with a much uh, more conservative, much more regimented demographic, you know, in the early days. Um, it was, you know, ready, aim, fire. People were running really hard to enable growth and all that sort of thing. Um, so now we're farther into the marketplace and, 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 and people are just on a, on a much more methodical, disciplined way of rolling out software. And uh, it's just culturally, you know, I, I think a little bit different. But uh, in manufacturing, look, we've been in manufacturing for, for a long time and people have, they have been, uh, you know, very data driven, very data savvy, if you will, have had a data culture around their operations for a long time. But the technology is now opening this up. Supply chain was incredibly difficult because of the siloing of data between the different parties that make up the supply chain. Those are now opportunities through data sharing that we can directly address. So I, I think there's there's a lot of pickup here for for supply chain uh, optimizations and improvement. All right, Frank Slootman, CEO of Snowflake. Thank you for joining us. After the break, the social side of trading, investing platform eToro 
getting some buzz today after launching a new partnership with Twitter. We'll talk to eToro's U.S. CEO next. And as we head to break, check out some of the names hitting 52-week highs today. McDonald's, Vertex, Cody, and Merck all making that list. We'll be right back. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Overtime. Let's get a CNBC News update with Seema Modi. Seema. Hey, John, here's the update at this hour. This afternoon, the FBI arresting 21-year-old Jack Texera, who was suspected of leaking classified Pentagon documents. Attorney General Mayor Garland said the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman was taken into custody without incident in connection with an ongoing investigation. The leaked documents contain sensitive intelligence about Russian efforts in Ukraine and evidence of the U.S. spying on allies. Jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is suffering from a mystery ailment, according to his spokeswoman. Navalny is reportedly grappling with severe stomach pain in jail and is, quote, not in good condition. The spokeswoman said she can't rule out that Navalny is being slow, uh, slowly poisoned, but offered no definitive proof. In 2020, keep in mind, Navalny survived an apparent attempt to poison him during a flight in Siberia. And Mitch McConnell saying he will return to D.C. to work in person after treatment for a concussion. The Senate minority leader had been working remotely as he recovered from a fall in early March that landed him in the hospital. Morgan, I'll send it back to you. Seema Modi, thank you. Thanks. Elon Musk taking the bull by the horns. Starting today, Twitter users that search for cash tags or hashtags with a dollar sign in front will be given the option to go directly to the eToro trading platform to invest. CNBC first broke the news overnight, and eToro U.S. CEO Lule Demise joins us now. Lule, great to have you on the show. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this partnership with Twitter. Why Twitter, and what is the business model here? Yeah, so as you know, eToro is a social trading platform, right? So that means that in our own ecosystem, social dialogue between users of our 30 million plus users is something that's part of our DNA. And so partnering with a platform that has over almost 5 million sort of hash, those dollar sign hashtags searches a day uh, made a lot of sense. Twitter has a lot of business as well as uh, news dialogue that happens to it. And so that synergy felt like a no-brainer no for us. Yeah. How deep is the intersection between finance and social media, Twitter or otherwise? I, I guess what, what is the total addressable market of this look like and what does it mean from a financial opportunity standpoint, standpoint for a startup like eToro? Yeah, so the financial opportunity comes later, right? The, 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 the first part of it is reach. Um, having, we believe that social investing creates reach and accessibility of knowledge about investing, dialogue about investing. And so ultimately that in itself ends up being a financial benefit. So of our 30 million users globally, around 3 million of them do trading and investing with us with funded accounts, right? So ultimately our, our thesis is that when you're in the dialogue sort of ecosystem, it creates opportunity, it creates knowledge and a sharing of information. And so again, that's why we're so super excited about this, this partnership because it, it matters magnifies that that conversation. So so in, 
it's one part education, essentially, or, or education within a social media sphere and one part mm -hmm. potential on ramp to future users on the platform. Yes. So one part education, one part dialogue, right, as social media platforms allow that. And then ultimately also coming into our eToro.com ecosystem uh, to learn more about our services. Lula, I want to get your sense of in retail investor sentiment. You guys did this survey of, of 10,000 retail investors uh, from February 20th through March 9th, and 70% said they were confident in their investments. But then on March 10th, we had SVB happen. So based on what you've seen in retail investor behavior and the chatter on the platform since, how much have things changed? Are people tilting more toward either safer investments, things that pay dividends, bond funds? I don't know. Uh, what are you seeing? So I would have two words for you when it comes to retail investors, resiliency and opportunistic. And that's exactly what we saw with even with the SV, when that when the crisis, the banking crisis hit, we saw retail opportunity and, and engagement rise that very same day. It doesn't mean that people are foolish and foolhardy. What it means is that the retail investor is becoming ambidextrous. On the one hand, looking at crisis and saying, how do I protect my portfolio with diversification and other things? On the other hand, how do I take advantage of crisis to be able to have gains in my portfolio? And I think that it's a welcome sort of sense of resiliency that we didn't see in the prior crises that we're seeing now. Yeah. Did you see a change in user behavior on the platform? I, I mean, I think about Betterment, which is a different company with a different business model. Um, but we had that company's CEO on last week, and she talked about seeing record inflows into their cash reserve in, in the wake of everything happening with, with the banks. Have you seen similar changes to investor behavior, or have you benefited in some way with new products? We have. So the, actually, what I would say to you is like they do three things all at once, right? On the one hand, we see searches and behavior for ETFs like Bill. On the other hand, we see searches for diversified ETFs like SPY or QQQ. Uh, and then on the, and then on top of everything else, they're opportunistic about saying, OK, we're seeing all this macroeconomic news. Does that mean I go into technology or, for that matter, digital assets? And so you're seeing this sort of like trifecta or quadruple of opportunity plus uh, defensiveness. Uh, but are, are you are you seeing th that shift significantly versus prior periods of market volatility? Because I mean, we were talking a couple years ago about Wall Street bets and the Reddit crowd, and was this good for investing? Are investors getting smarter, or are they just getting risky? I, it, it seems to me. I mean, I don't see a lot of evidence that it's made investors a lot smarter. But I hope that maybe that's happening on eToro. What can you tell us? Yeah, you know, and the part of it is, you know, it's so much easier to have a narrative of either losers or winners, right? It's not as interesting to talk about the person that's learning from their losses and their gains. Um, so we do actually see investors being more holders. We have 70 percent, as, as you saw on our on our research, that feel like they are still opportunistic about investing. And remember, our investors are what I call tomorrow's investors. So in other words, millennials, young Xers. And so they appreciate the length of time they have in, ahead of them. And so they look at these as opportunity. I will tell you that this year and the past year has been an education in what happens when you have a frothy market. And people have taken that to heart in terms of understanding diversification and other things. What's really been exciting is that they haven't run away. All right. Final question for you, because I know crypto is something that you offer on your platform as well. As we're seeing this crypto winter thaw, perhaps a little bit where specifically Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum are concerned, have you seen a pickup in activity there? 
We have, we have. And, and you know, as you know, it's, brought, it's been up, what, 78, 70% year to date. And again, we're not saying, you know, we don't win. We don't necessarily tell people it's Bitcoin, Ethereum or anything else. It's more about this diversification mindset that we promote and education at the center of that. All right. Lule, uh, Lule Dimasse, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, earnings season officially kicks off tomorrow, so much as there is an official kickoff, but Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, and Wells Fargo are going to report results. Those names are going to be even more closely watched this quarter because of the turmoil in the banking sector. A top analyst is going to tell us which bank he says is too cheap to resist. And don't forget, you can catch us on the go by following the Closing Bell Overtime podcast on your favorite podcast app. We will be right back. Investors are going to be on alert tomorrow morning as we get the first round of bank earnings. This comes as Wall Street still reeling from the Silicon Valley bank collapse, growing recession fears. Joining us now is Chris Katowski from Oppenheimer. Chris, we tend to pay attention to the biggest banks and not as much to the regionals. But I have a sense that maybe we're going to need to pay a lot more attention to the regionals this season in particular. What are the most important metrics there? Well, the big banks will report first. And, you know, so far, uh, when you look at the deposit numbers that you get from the Fed every Friday, uh, the big banks have been in relatively fine shape. You know, since Silicon Valley, they've lost roughly six tenths of a percent of their deposits. The smaller banks, by contrast, 4.2 percent. So, you know, you can see really that's where the, the outflow has been. And if anything, the big banks have probably had a little bit of a benefit. But I think the two questions that people are going to be asking mainly is, yeah, what are the deposit flows and where are you at quarter end? And then they're also going to ask, you know, okay, how these big securities portfolios, how quickly are they going to burn down? um, And what should we see in the marks going forward? All right. Well, Chris, stay with us because we do have breaking news on the Fed's balance sheet. Steve Leisman has the details. Hi, Steve. Thanks very much, uh, Morgan. The Fed's balance sheet shrinking again to 8.58 trillion dollars. That's down 17.2 billion on the week. And that is down for the third straight week. We still haven't uh, uh, given back uh, all all of the gains. Uh, Still up $274 billion since the uh, um, uh, failure of the two big banks. But it's interesting how it happened. You had a uh, $9.2 billion decline in the amount of money the banks are taking down. So there's definitely a reduction in stress. So the discount window fell by $2 billion. Is that right? Yes, that's right. $2 billion. And the bank term funding program, that's the other thing. When other places the banks can go to get liquidity where they can bring their paper at par, uh, that totaled uh, $71 billion. And that was down by $7.1 billion. Other credit extensions, that's the thing the Fed is using to finance the two banks, uh, sorry, the FDIC is using from the Fed to finance the two banks. That was down, loans to the bridge banks down $1.9 billion, so at least that's not growing and getting worse. Uh, so bank borrowing from the Fed was a total of, I'm going to double check that number, um, I have $139 billion on that number, a little different from what I'm seeing in my, in my screen there. But uh, the key here, I think, is that you still have a, quite a bit of borrowing from these two programs at the Fed, but it's uh, gotten sequentially a little bit better each week. And I have a chance to talk to uh, uh, Austin Goolsby, the new Chicago Fed president, tomorrow morning about this. He, I will have a, uh, his first uh, TV interview, his first interview, I guess, totally uh, since becoming Chicago Fed president tomorrow morning, 830 on Squawk Box. John? That is must-watch TV, uh, especially since he is a voting member. We're going to be watching that very closely. 
Steve Leisman, thank you. Uh, Chris, we're going to go back to you. Uh, This data, this high-frequency data that we get from the Fed, your reaction to it, how closely are you watching it, and how does it set us up for bank earnings and, and the focus on the balance sheets? We're watching it every week. And I think the big takeaway that people should have from these numbers is that overall, most of the deposits that are in the banking system are there for a reason. And that's especially true with the big banks, right? Like Silicon Valley, in some ways, was a place where where companies parked money. The big banks like JP Morgan and Wells Fargo and B of A, they don't want companies to just park money with them. You know, what they want is the operating accounts that's tied into a company's uh, payroll and paying their suppliers and all that. That's that's kind of what they get nice sticky deposits for. And so far, what you're seeing with the big banks is really stability in their deposit bases. Uh, And I think that's the big takeaway. And that's a good good news for most of the banks. So, Chris, tell us about this bank that's uh, too cheap to resist. Oh, you mean uh, city? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, if if you're if you're a, a regular investor who is thinking like, oh, maybe the banks got oversold and and I should you know participate in a rebound, they're quite honestly the names I'd invite advise you to get involved with for that are are um, Bank of America and U.S. Bank, you know, big broad-based uh, banks with huge deposit bases. And, and they've been sold off with the rest. You know, the one that's really too cheap to resist is, is Citibank. And, you know, they have been chronic under earners, but it's, you know, they've chronically earned like seven, eight, nine percent returns on equity when everybody else is earning 12, 13, 14, 15. And so it's, it's been chronically uh, under earning. But on the other hand, you know, it's trading uh, barely above half half of tangible book, and they have been buying back stock year in year out. Mm-hmm. So you know, over the last six seven years, they've been able to reduce their share count by by over a third. Okay. And you know, the the bet is that at some point they they get their act together and they can get their returns closer to the uh, to the peer average, and they'll you'll you'll have that value spread out over a lot fewer shares. Okay. Uh, so quickly, Chris, we also get PNC reporting tomorrow. How does that set the stage for the regional results we're going to be getting in the coming days and coming weeks? Yeah, that will be the biggest bellwether, though Though B of A and, and Wells Fargo also are very much regionals. Uh, again, you're going to want to see, and I think with, with PNC, they had been very vocal about the fact that they didn't care so much about their tangible common equity ratios and that they were going to continue to buy back stock. Mm. That was their you know, mantra through the fourth quarter. You know, we'll see if they moderate that. I would expect them to. Um, but, uh, you know, and I, and I think, though, you'll see their, their numbers probably firmly in the big bank uh, category, meaning modest deposit runoff maybe, but, but kind of to be expected. Okay. And again, just to put all that into context, you know, when the Fed balance ballooned its balance sheet, it ballooned its balance sheet by $4.8 trillion. Guess what happened to bank deposits? They went up by $4.7 trillion over the same time period. And it's only natural that some of that was going to r- roll out of the banking system, um, you know, inevitably. Uh, but so far, you know, of that $4.8 trillion, probably, you know, less than a trillion has actually rolled off. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. 
Morgan, it's not just me. A lot of guests saying, on the other hand, this afternoon. And I'm like Pavlov's dog. I like salivate every time that happens. <laughs> uh, up next, Evercore ISI's Mark Mahaney weighs in on the NASDAQ's big rally and explains why AI could provide a tailwind to big tech stocks this earnings season and beyond. We'll be right back. The NASDAQ 100 posting its best day in nearly a month, up some 2% today. Big tech powered the rally. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, all posting strong gains. Joining us now is Evercore head of Internet Research, Mark Mahaney. Mark, what about this? I mean, you're saying a lot of multiples have been de-risked and estimates have been de-risked, but is there just this huge difference between the largest tech companies and internet names writ large because it looks like the biggest are kind of expensive. Uh, okay, well, I think there is a difference. I, I think the market's coming back more so for the large cap names because they were de-risked. I mean, we had a massive sell-off across tech last year, probably for some very good reasons, but the setup this year is just, just materially more constructive. And so, yes, estimates have been de-risked. We had a lot of estimates cuts last year. And then uh, multiples, you know, you've got names like uh, Amazon, Google, and the space that I look at, at Meta, that are pretty close to trough multiples. So that's, that, that's a very constructive uh, setup, we think, for at least, uh, you know, uh, Internet stocks and, and definitely for the large cap names. We, we continue to like, even with the 90% run in the stock here today, we continue to like Meta. Uh, and, uh, and we continue to like a few other names like Uber that haven't had the big run up yet, but we think will happen. Uh, and then Spotify and Netflix, those would be kind of our top four picks. But we're getting a lot of queries and a lot of discussions on Amazon and Google, too. I was a little surprised to see Spotify in there. Why do you like that one, you know, given all of the hand-wringing that we, we've seen over past quarters about how much they were spending on podcasts, et cetera. They're getting an uh, inflection point with their profits? I hope so. I mean, that's the, that's the pitch. And uh, if there was, you know, if there's a handful of companies that really needed to get the memo about managing down costs, Spotify was at the top of that list. Uh, they had sort of indicated, we all thought that they were going to see a margin inflection point, a profitability point. Profitability inflection point last year. We didn't get it because they accelerated investments in the podcasting. They saw what happened to their stock. I think they got the message uh, loud and clear. And so if they reverse that and you start getting gross margin expansion, especially for low gross margin stocks, that's usually a huge catalyst. We think we're going to get that. That's why we like it. And that's why we have not performed on it. That's why I particularly like it for this year. Mark, what did you think of the Amazon investor letter this morning and some of the commentary we did get from Andy Jassy, whether it was talking about consumers continuing to spend, but maybe seeing more trade down and uh, a little more discretion in terms of what they're buying uh, through Amazon? And then, of course, more details on AI. Morgan, I, I thought he checked pretty much every box he needed to check with that shareholder letter. And I've read them all over the last 26, 27 years out of uh, Amazon. So highlighted cost efficiencies, did a little bit of a click into uh, generative uh, AI, and then warned people about softness, particularly in AWS, which is what we're really concerned about uh, near term. Talked about some efficiencies in the current business, uh, faster speeds out of retail. And then they talked about that elusive fourth pillar or what are the new, new growth opportunities for them. That's some satellites, it's healthcare, it's groceries to some extent. So I thought they kind of I thought that letter covered everything you wanted to know if you were an Amazon shareholder. It's not like he didn't cover the issues that were pressing for most Amazon shareholders. I, it's a worthwhile read. I, so I thought they did a good job, and I think that helps explain why the stock is up today. Yeah, stock did end, end the day up more than 4.5%. Mark Mahaney, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Morgan.
And of course, the Nasdaq had a strong day as well, finishing up 2%, a little over 2%. Bitcoin has also been booming, but Ether is outperforming today. Find out why investors are betting big on this cryptocurrency when overtime returns. Welcome back to Overtime. Cryptocurrency Ether hitting its highest level since August after a software update sparked a wave of new investors to jump in. Mackenzie Sigalos explains why she's on set. What happened here with Ethereum? So, Morgan, the headline of this software upgrade was that it unlocked $31 billion worth of Ether tokens. The worry was that we'd see investors rush to liquidate their holdings now that they had the option to withdraw tokens that up until last night had been staked on the blockchain for years. The concern was that a flood of supply would drag down the price, but the upgrade has actually had the exact opposite effect. The queue to put your money in and stake it in order to earn yield ranging from around 5 to 6% is a whole lot longer than the line to cash out. In the last 24 hours, crypto traders appear to have realized that they over-indexed on upgrade-related worries. There's been no substantial selling pressure, and instead we've seen Ether breach that key $2,000 price threshold. It's been outperforming Bitcoin up more than 6%. When we talk about staking, what are we? At, what does that actually mean? It means that you are essentially putting a cache of your Ether holdings up in order to say that I will be a validator on this network. Network, I will help you confirm transactions, and in reward, as a reward for that, you're going to earn yield of five to six percent. And the case here, you know, last year you've got these bankrupt firms like Celsius Network that were promising 18 percent APR for not doing anything really. It was fake yield, but. The argument is that in the crypto space, Ether staking is a pretty good place to park your cash. Uh, quickly, any chance this is a short squeeze? Well, I mean, I think that a lot of the, you know, the short bets were liquidated overnight. You've got Ether doing quite well right now. And, and, and I think the, the larger takeaway for a lot of investors is that we're probably going to see institutional money come into the space, which is what led the last uh, bull run. Okay. Mackenzie, thanks. Up next, we will discuss whether BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, is a buy ahead of tomorrow's earnings report. We'll be right back. Take a look here at shares of Hartford Financial moving lower in overtime, just over 3%. The uh, insurance company out with preliminary earnings results, EPS, coming in 30 cents below estimates at a buck 68 blaming catastrophe losses from winter storms and recent severe weather meantime competitor progressive finished at the bottom of the s&p 500 today down more than six and a half percent after earnings disappointed the other financials that's a big move for progressive well sticking with earnings blackrock is getting set to report numbers tomorrow before the bell our next guest joins us with a strong buy rating on the stock Let's bring in CFRA Research Vice President and Director Kathy Seifert. Kathy, great to have on the show. What are you watching for when BlackRock reports tomorrow? So, I mean, you know, market conditions are challenging and BlackRock is not immune to any of these challenges. But I think this is a good opportunity to sort of get into really a top tier asset management franchise. Um, My sense is that incrementally from year end to the first quarter, we're likely to see a revenue uptick. But on a year over year basis, we're probably going to see a five to eight percent revenue decline for the full year. I think revenues will be up modestly, assuming that things gradually improve. But I think there are four key things that investors should be focused on um, during the the BlackRock call. Um, One of them is fund flows. If you look at the asset management space, there's really two camps. There's 
those firms that grow their AUM because they have a tailwind of a strong market and those firms that are capable of growing AUM organically because money is coming to the firm. And I put BlackRock in the latter camp. They had almost $400 billion of inflows last year, which was a tough year. I think inflows are going to stay positive um, and continue to top their peers. Hmm. Um, I, I think in terms of some of the dust up that happened over some of the ESG initiatives, I think it'll be important to hear what kind of pension fund mandates they may have brought in during the quarter. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, what? No, I was just saying, okay, I, I, just to go back to this idea of growing AUM organically, is BlackRock in a position to have potentially benefited from inflows uh, in the wake of the banking turmoil we've seen in recent weeks? So that's an interesting, it's an interesting point. And there are a number of um, businesses at BlackRock that could potentially benefit. I mean, obviously, they've been hired by the government to dispose of the um, Silicon Valley assets. But I also think that if you look at what happened to Silicon Valley, it was a failure of asset liability management and a risk management failure. Um, BlackRock has Aladdin, which is becoming the go-to risk management and cash management software package for asset managers. I think Aladdin will benefit from all of, from this crisis. And then the other thing in terms of, you know, when you have a market crisis like this, you tend to have a flight to quality. Bigger is better. Diversified is better. Okay. And firms like BlackRock are positioned to benefit from that. Kathy, um, quickly, if you can, why the sell on T. Rowe Price? Um, a valuation call combined with some mixed to de eroding um, fixed income performance numbers, a lack of exposure to a lack of significant exposure to two areas that are growing fast, the alternative um, market hmm. and the ETF marketplace. And a, again, a valuation call. All right. Appreciate it. Kathy, thank you. You're welcome. Well, tomorrow, don't miss an exclusive interview with BlackRock CEO Larry Fink on Squawk on the Street. That kicks off at 10 a.m. Eastern. Also coming up tomorrow, two key reads on the consumer when we get retail sales data and also the latest consumer sentiment number. We're going to talk about the state of spending with the CEO of Krispy Kreme. Sweet. Whose stock, <laughs> delicious, whose stock is up sharply so far this year, which is, by the way, something we've seen with a lot of the restaurant and fast food names since the start of the year. I, especially when it comes to restaurants and food, I wonder about the inferior good effect. And maybe it's too early for some of that to be kicking in, though we did see it with retail at the very beginning of the year and Walmart's results. I don't know. Like, you remember that? Things seemed so bad for a couple of weeks before, before they were fine? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be an interesting earnings season. We have seen in all the data thus far, though, the shift from goods to services. Restaurants have been in a position potentially to benefit. But we also know restaurants have been navigating higher costs. Are we going to see the trade down effect now into services, things like restaurants that, that we have seen in goods uh, where something like Walmart is concerned? And does Krispy Kreme actually benefit from that? Is that a good or is it a service? I don't know. It's both. It's a it's a good service. <laughs> Gets on your fingers. I'm a little hungry here. Thing. I'm getting yeah, a little I hungry. Uh, I appreciate how Frank Slootman made an ice cream metaphor after the last time we had him on. You know, it was all about candy bars. I think um, we've got something sweet going <laughs> between between Snowflake and then crossing over to, to Krispy Kreme.
Yeah, we, uh, we do. In the meantime, we did have a market rally today. The Nasdaq led the charge up 2% today. Um, the, the laggard was the transportation average, which was down slightly. Uh, we did get those Delta earnings this morning, which missed street expectations, but really strong commentary and, and uh, you know, forward forecast from um, the CEO at Bastion on CNBC. But now banks. It's all about banks starting tomorrow and then heading into next week, especially those regionals. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here at Overtime. Fast Money starts now. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app. Or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.